Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to do the first 12 verses. Our context is this. In chapter 1, first 12 verses, Peter told his readers that they were born again to a living hope. In the second part of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, Peter told his readers that they were called to be holy. So now Peter shifts his emphasis to the Christians that he's writing to in 1 Peter. Now he starts talking about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12, which I've chosen to entitle a cornerstone and a stumbling block. Just to give you a heads up, Jesus is the cornerstone, which means he's the main stone that holds the church together, the house of God. And he's a stumbling block. That's for believers. And for non-believers, he's a stumbling block that people trip over and people fall down and get ground to powder. So let's start now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, so that through it you may grow unto salvation. For you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's a nice infant metaphor, a nice food metaphor here. Now, my New American Bible translation that I'm using here has rid yourself. There's no therefore there. But the NIV has therefore rid yourself. What could they be referring to? Where they're connecting rebirth with the incorruptible word of God that saves us, according to the NIV study Bible, that was mentioned in the near the end of chapter 1. Peter says this, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Born again, so you're just a baby. Okay? Well, what do babies need? They need milk. And so then Peter logically moves on to, you need pure spiritual milk so that you can grow up. It's nice to get born again. It's nice to be a baby. But if anybody remains a baby for 10 years or so, people don't like that. That's not a good situation. Likewise with Christians. It's nice when people are babies, but babies need to grow. Now, when he says... When Peter says, rid yourself of all malice, deceit, insincerity, envy, and slander, he's obviously not telling you to do that in your own strength. Anytime there's a command in the scripture, it is implicit that these exhortations to spiritual holiness have got to be accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, or it just ain't going to happen because of the wars that war in our flesh that Peter's going to mention later on in this section. Now, my version has these Christian babies, newborn infants should long for pure spiritual milk. Then IV has crave, which is a little bit better translation, I think. That's what hungry babies do. Man, you ever seen a baby? Of course you have. If you've had one, you've seen a baby cry, wants food. My gosh, they're loud. That's the only defense mechanism they have. They drive you crazy until you get some food in their little tiny stomachs. That's the way Christians ought to be about learning the word. Pure spiritual milk. Long for it. Crave it. Pure milk, in contrast to all the deceit that was mentioned, deceit, insincerity, envy, and slander, that's bad stuff, that's poison. No, you want pure milk. Now here, milk is said to be pure as opposed to poisonous or corrupt. Milk is used in two other scriptures in the New Testament to refer to appropriate food for babies, but there it's used in a little bit different sense. Milk is used for babies, other food is fit for grown-up people. The idea of purity is not there, but it is here in Second, First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Let's look at those two other scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3, 2. I fed you milk, Paul says to the Corinthians, not solid food, because you were unable to take it. Indeed, you are still not able even now. So there, he's chastising them. It's time to grow up. Quit drinking milk. So there's a negative, a negative flavor to the idea of drinking milk, whereas Peter is saying, hey, it's a good thing to drink pure spiritual milk. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Although you should be teachers by this time, 
You need to have someone teach you again the basic elements of the utterances of God. You need milk and not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk lacks experience of the word of righteousness, for he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties are trained by practice to discern good and evil. So there again, the idea is milk is for immature people. You ought not to be immature anymore. You ought to grow up and quit drinking milk. So milk has a little bit negative connotation in those two other places. But here, Peter doesn't go into that. He just says, hey, start longing for pure milk. That's how you start out. And that milk helps you to grow into salvation. You know, I love theology and I love deeper type Bible studies. I go all the way to the seminary level to study stuff written by seminary level scholars and such. And I love that, but... I'm never going to say that the simple stuff that baby Christians need to hear is not helpful, not only to them, but to the people that are feeding it to them. I teach a lot of young Chinese Christians. I did it when I was in China, and I'm still doing it over the Internet. And they're young. They don't know a lot. They're young physically, naturally, but they're also young in the faith. And they lap up this basic stuff that I ladle out to them. And it helps them, and I see it. And I'm a little bit bored with it because I've heard it a million thousand times. You know, but, hey, they need it. So there's nothing wrong with drinking milk when you're a baby. It's just that you need to grow up out of it and start drinking, eating solid food. Peter says for you, you should drink this spiritual milk because you have tasted the Lord is good. Tasted, that means you've just gotten started. and You haven't eaten the full meal of the Lord yet. You've just gotten started. You've tasted. When they first got saved is when they experienced Jesus, as then I've studied Bible puts it. Peter is seemingly quoting from Psalms, according to Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. This is Psalm 34, 8. Learn to savor how good the Lord is. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Learn to savor him. In other words, when things aren't going well, pick up the news and it's totally depressing, as it is right now. Savor, that means let the food sit in your mouth. Let the saliva Run a little bit of that food off into your taste buds. And you think, oh my goodness, this, thing, this steak tastes good. Or this whatever, this pizza, whatever it is you're eating. This lasagna, this hamburger, this gung bao ji ding. Oh man, that tastes good because you're taking time to eat it. You're not just wolfing it down like a dog does. Well, the same thing with the Lord. Think about how good he's been to you and what he's done for you. And remember how good he is. That's savoring what the Lord's done for you. Savoring how good the Lord is. 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Come to him, a living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. So Peter is now telling his readers to come to Jesus. Now he's not telling them to come in conversion, as Jameson Fawcett Brown says, because they're already saved. They're the Jewish Christians who were in the diaspora, mainly in Asia Minor, in uh, Asia, tur- present-day Turkey, Anatolia, as we learn from verse 1, chapter 1. So he's not telling them to come to Jesus to get saved, but to be closer in fellowship. So these are baby Christians that need to drink the pure milk of the word and get closer and closer and closer to Jesus. There's a young baby Christian about a, a year old in China right now that I'm I'm not teaching her. I don't need to because she's so spiritual. Well, actually, she could use te- everybody can use teaching. But she reads A.W. Tozer and then she starts talking about what the Lord's done for. And she is so spiritual. I, I, I'm starting to think she might be super spiritual. That might be something that needs to get worked out. I don't know, but I'm telling you. She's tasted the word of God, and she ain't never letting him go. She said, this is what God has done in one year. He straightened out my my horrible attitudes toward my ex-husband. He straightened out the horrible rebellion of my daughter, and I'm telling you, that daughter was rebellious. He's gotten me past my depression. I was going to a mental hospital during this past year, and Jesus has helped that. My job, her job, because she was divorced, and so she had to have a job, 
was in shambles, financial disaster, God straightened that out. She didn't even mention the COVID-19 pandemic or the fact that the communist church government blew up her church and sent all the foreigners home that had started this church, a great church that I used to go to it. She didn't think about that. She was just savoring all the good things of God. Come to him, a living stone. Of course, stones don't live, so that's kind of an oxymoronic expression. He's referring, he's referring to the cornerstone he's going to mention that Jesus is in verse 6. Peter may actually be reflecting words Jesus spoke about him, because remember, Peter means rock, which is stone. Peter means stone, basically. Matthew 16, 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the force of Hades will not overpower it. Now, isn't it ironic the Catholics didn't say Peter's the first pope, but Peter himself, when we get down to verse 6, says that Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the cornerstone, and here he says he's a living stone. So... The first pope was pretty humble, unlike the Catholics who make him out to be some kind of quasi-God. They misinterpret Matthew 16, 18, which says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The rock of his confession that Jesus was Lord, that's the rock. Peter's confession, not Peter the person. Now, Peter is making a reference to Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 16 says this, Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, the one who believes will be unshakable. And that verse is quoted in Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's, of course, talking about the Messiah Jesus. He was rejected because the Jews killed him. He became the cornerstone because he started the church. Without the cornerstone, the building falls down. The cornerstone is, you look at the foundation, and where two foundations come together at a right angle, right at that right angle is where the stone is, and that sort of holds up the whole building. He's the cornerstone of the church. I read somewhere, I don't have it in my notes here, and I'm talking from memory, but I'm pretty sure this is true, that the Greek word for cornerstone can also be translated keystone, like the keystone of an arch, and so people sometimes debate on how it should be translated. I'm just going to go with cornerstone here. The point is, he's the stone that holds the house together, the church. Now, that's the good news for people who believe and are in that church. But this living stone that's rejected by human beings, what about the people that reject him? What's, how's the stone to them? Well, let's look at Isaiah 8:14. He, the Messiah, will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over. That's, that's the two houses, that's uh, Israel and Judah, northern tribes and the southern tribes. He will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's right, because Jerusalem rejected him, and then Jesus came and judged them in AD 70 through the agency of the Roman soldiers that burnt the place to the ground. 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says this, And all drank the same spiritual drink. This is referring to the Jews when they came out on the Exodus. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, rock of ages. That's a metaphor, of course. And, of course, he's referring to the fact that when Moses struck the rice at two different times during the during the Exodus, I think it was at Rephidim and Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, struck the rock twice, water came out of that rock. Well, the metaphor works like this. Jesus is the rock that provides living water. 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. It doesn't mention a stone, but it does mention a foundation there. So Jesus is the foundation stone of the church, as we'll talk about as we go on. Rejected by human beings because the Jews killed him, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. So Jesus, our head, has been elect. He's chosen. Now that's kind of interesting. He's chosen. This is the way John Gill explains that. Jesus' human nature was chosen from among and above all other individuals of mankind to be united to the Son of God. 
That's interesting. He's chosen in his humanity. Adam Clark says, on the other, other hand, Jesus was chosen to be the Savior of the world and the founder of the church. And I think that makes a little more sense to me, but could be, Gil could be right. Jesus was chosen by God, but by men, by the Jews, he was rejected. Now, Peter, in the book of Acts, and I'm going to run you through this, the same Peter that wrote this book that we're studying, Peter in Acts often contrasts the enmity of men for Christ and God's exaltation of Christ. The rejection and the choosing, if you will. Acts 2, 22 through 36 is Peter speaking. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. There's the rejection. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God has resurrected this Jesus. There's the exaltation. There's the choosing. There's the election of Jesus. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he's poured out. This is Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Acts 3, verses 13 through 15. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. There's the exaltation. Whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer given to him. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. Now, you know, Peter did mince his words. People who hated Jesus enough to kill him and, of course, hated his apostles too he got up in front of them and said you're murderers you murdered the messiah can you imagine the reaction that these people had when they heard that but again back to our theme rejection by people exaltation and election by god acts 4 10 through 11 let it be known to all of you peter says and to all the people of israel but that that to by the name of jesus christ the nazarene whom you crucified and whom god raised from the dead there's the rejection you crucified in the exaltation and the choice, the choosing, the election of God, of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. By whom this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now here Peter quotes the very psalm that he quoted in his letter of First Peter. This, of course, is Peter speaking in Acts 4 also. So that, that scripture was on his mind. Acts 10, 39 through 42. This again is Peter. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day. So there's the rejection. They killed him. And then the election, the choosing of Jesus as the head of the Savior of the world. God raised up this man on the third day. He commanded us to preach to the people to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So there's his choice. The election of Jesus is to be the judge of the living and the dead. So this idea is strong in Peter, the human rejection, the evil human rejection of the Messiah. And of course, Peter's writing mostly to Jews. It was the Jews of that wicked generation that killed Jesus. Not all generations, that wicked generation that killed Jesus. Again, I I can't emphasize this enough. We can't blame Jews from all times for killing Jesus any more than we can blame Italians today for having murdered Jesus because the Roman soldiers participated in the crucifixion. We go now to, well, I'm not finished yet. Jesus is said to be a living stone. It's interesting how much living is used as part of different metaphors in the scriptures, especially in the book of John. So let's look at that. John 4, 10 through 14. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink. He's talking to the Samaritan woman. You would ask him and he would give you living water. It means water that not only gives, well, water gives life, but he's talking here as a metaphor. The words of Jesus is spiritual water that gives spiritual life. So the Samaritan woman, dot, 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 says, where do you get this living water? And Jesus said, in fact, the water I give, 
the water I give will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. In other words, living water that gives life. John 7:38. the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Water gives life and it flows, not dead. Living water means it's fresh, it's flowing, it's clear. There's no bugs in it, no, no nasty stuff. Living water. Now, how about bread? John 6:51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So it's the bread that gives life. You have to have bread to eat just like you have to have water to eat. So living water means water that gives life. Living bread that gives life is the bread. A living bread is, is bread that gives life. The bread that I will give, Jesus says, for the life of the world is my flesh. In other words, my dying on the cross to knock out sins. That's how he is bread for the world, John Hebrews 10:20, new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. A living way, a way of life that brings life, a course of one's life that gives you eternal life, living. Romans 12:1, Paul says this, therefore brothers by the mercies of God I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that brings life to your life. So it's an interesting metaphor that word living. I've never really noticed that before until I just did this little mini word study. Let's go now to verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 2. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Of course, Peter is Jewish. He's very familiar with the Old Testament temple. He's using that Old Testament temple as a type, as a metaphor, if you will, for the spiritual temple of the New Testament, the church. So you yourselves are living stones. We just found out that Jesus was a living stone, and now the Christians are living stones too. So our adopted brother, Jesus Christ, is a stone that holds the church together. He's the cornerstone, and he's living. He brings life to the whole, to the whole structure, and we are living stones. So we are alive, and we're built into the church, and we bring life to the whole structure and to people who come in there. So you Christians, Peter says, are being built into a spiritual house as opposed to a a house of physical stone, a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, a holy priesthood, that's us. Again, in the Old Testament temple, there were priests running around everywhere offering animal sacrifices to symbolically wash away the sins, at least for a year, at least figuratively, for the people of Israel. But we are a holy priesthood ourselves in our spiritual house, the church, we're a priesthood, and what do priests do? They're go-betweens between God and man. They present the truth of God and the life of God from God to the people, and likewise they take the petitions and requests of the people and take them up to God, which if you think about it is what Christians do in their normal life. They pray for other Christians. They intercede for them. They lift them up to God's throne. Or if they get something from God, they learn something from God, they try to pass it out to, to other Christians and try to help them with it. So we're priests in, our, in the church. And we offer spiritual sacrifices, that's to contrast with oxen and lambs and goats, physical sacrifices. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Now, what kind of sacrifices are offered? The New Testament has several examples of spiritual sacrifices. One, one's whole body and one's whole life is a, is a spiritual sacrifice. We give financial aid to somebody, that's a spiritual sacrifice. We give praise to God, that's a spiritual sacrifice. Let's look at the scriptures that show that. First, to show that spiritual sacrifice can be of one's body or one's life. Romans 12.1, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're not dead like the dead animal. You're still living. But you're a sacrifice like that animal. And, of course, animals had to be holy. They had to be 
without blemish. They had to be pleasing to God, and we need to be the same way. This is your spiritual worship. Material offerings, Paul calls in Philippians 4.18, an acceptable sacrifice. But I have received everything in full, talking about money, and I have in abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you provided, the Philippians are giving him money, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So when those Philippian Christians gave money to Paul, Paul used that as saying that's the same thing as somebody giving a sacrifice in the Old Testament temple, which God liked. He liked that pleasing aroma. So he likes it when you give money to a poor traveling itinerant worker. Hebrews 13, 16, don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. That's Hebrews, and that share, that means money. For God is pleased with such sacrifices. Giving money is a sacrifice, a pleasing sacrifice to God. And how about just praise with our lips? Hebrews 13, 15, therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. A praise sacrifice, if you will. Again, it's a metaphor. It's talking about just as the whole burnt offering went up in smoke all the way to heaven and God smelled the sweet savor, likewise our praises go up to heaven. And he likes to be praised, folks. Sincerely, thank him all the time. Between, you know, in the hours that you are praying for your sordid messes that you get into in, in your life, which everybody does, throw some praise in there. Doesn't Paul say that uh, offer up your prayers with thanksgiving? That's a sacrifice of praise. Praise more. Petition less would probably be a good balance, maybe, for most of us. Now, we as priests should be a priest like Jesus is priest. Jesus is the high priest. We're an ordinary priest to carry the Old Testament metaphor forward. But let's look at how Jesus is as a high priest. Hebrews 7.26, For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Likewise, that could be said of us. That's what we need to be, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. 1 Peter 1.15, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conducts. That's the kind of priest we need to be, holy priest. We go to verse 6, 1 Peter 2. For it is contained in Scripture, colon, quote, Look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The Scripture that is being quoted here by Peter is Isaiah 28.16. Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Notice that cornerstone here is connected with foundation because the idea is you don't have a foundation, the building's going to fall down, and you don't have a cornerstone, the foundation's not going to hold together. And so, by extension, the building's going to fall down if you don't have a cornerstone. So the cornerstone is extremely important architecturally. Now, Isaiah said, and Peter says, by quoting Isaiah, that God is laying a stone in Zion. Well, what is Zion? Here's two options. First of all, Zion is an Old Testament term that is used figuratively, figuratively for the church. I think it's Hebrews 12:2. Let me look that up. Hold on just a second. All right, here it is. The verse in Hebrews 12:22 says this. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, the heavenly Jerusalem is a church, so Mount Zion is used as a symbol for the church straight out in Hebrews 12:22. So if we read Zion that way, our verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 6 says this, Look, I lay a stone in Zion, in the church. Jesus is the cornerstone laid in the church. That's fine. John Gill, on the other hand, says that I lay a stone in Zion refers to the fact that Jesus was killed in Jerusalem, where Mount Zion was. Because, of course, Zion is short, is a metonymy that's used for Jerusalem a lot, the city of Jerusalem, because Mount Zion was a prominent hill in Jerusalem. 
So that would be physical Zion that, in the way that Gill interprets Peter. I don't think so. I think I lay a stone in Zion means he lays a stone in the church. A chosen and honored cornerstone. We've already talked about how Jesus was elect before. And Peter is going to say in three verses, we're elect, we're chosen just like Jesus is. First Peter 2, nine. But you are a chosen race. You are an elect race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, etc. So Jesus, going back to verse 6 in First Peter 2, Jesus is a chosen and honored cornerstone. This, of course, is everywhere in the scriptures. Let me read some to you again. Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Matthew 21.42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This came from the Lord is wonderful in our eyes. Mark 12.10, haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Luke 20.17, but he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone. Acts 4.11, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. So this is a significant idea in the scriptures. The cornerstone was the most significant stone in a structure. The NIV Study Bible points out it determined the design and orientation of a building. I would also say it helped hold the building up, I think. I'm not an architect, but I wouldn't be surprised. Now, Peter says that the one who believes in this cornerstone will never be put to shame. There's two possible results that can occur when interacting with the cornerstone Jesus. One is you can never be put to shame. He's the cornerstone in the building, which is the church. The church will never fail, and you're part of that church, and so you're never going to fail either. You're going to be suckered inside that church, and all the other living stones contributing their spiritual gifts are going to contribute to your spiritual gifts. You're going to grow up, and you ain't going to go down. The other possible result in interacting with the cornerstone is you could stumble and fall and trip over the cornerstone, continue, continuing with the rock metaphor. 1 Peter 2.8, which is coming up shortly. A stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the message they were destined for this. So there's your two choices. Let's go down to 1 Peter 2.7 and 8. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. There's your two possible results from interacting with this cornerstone. Honor on one hand and getting rejected and stumbling on the other hand, as we continue in verse 8, a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the message. They were destined for this. And, of course, the, the builders, of course, the Old Testament Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. And then they stumbled because they disobeyed Jesus. And they were destined for this, for stumbling. And stumbling is sort of a mild thing because it got destroyed, completely wiped out in eighty seventy. This idea of stumbling is a quote from Isaiah 8.14, he will be a sanctuary, but for the two houses of Israel, that's northern Israel and southern Judah, ten northern tribes, two southern tribes, he will be a stone, which is basically all of Israel that was existing by the time that Jesus got there, even though they've been, both of those northern and Israel tribes had been wiped out and scattered all over the world. But the two houses of Israel stands for the nation of Israel. He will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And that's what happened. They didn't listen to him. They got wiped out in AD 70. That is the verse that Peter is alluding to, alluding to according to Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. I think that's very clear. Here's another idea of stumbling. Jeremiah 13:16. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the mountains at dusk. You wait for light, but he brings darkest gloom and makes thick darkness. That's for people that are about to get judged. Jeremiah was not talking to Americans here, but he very well could have been. 
if he were here, I imagine I'd like to hear what he would have to say about the spiritual state of this land of mine. Matthew twenty-one forty-four. Jesus says, whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Little Jesus, meek and mild. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and that includes his son, Jesus Christ. You know, he had eyes of fire in Revelation. That doesn't sound like somebody that's coming around here to pat you on the head if you don't believe in him. This was destined. They were destined for the stumbling. Oh, whenever you see that word destined, the old Calvinist Arminian debate comes to your mind. Here's the options as to what it means, according to the NIV Study Bible. First option, God foreordained these people to be lost. That would be Augustinians, Calvinists who believe that. But of course, now the Calvinists would say they were lost according to their free will. They wanted to be lost. They didn't want to follow Jesus. But God determined it, but the free will was still there. Option number two, God foreknew they would be lost. Doesn't that sound like the Armenians? That is the Armenian solution. He knew it, but he didn't cause it to be because God doesn't have control of history. Our free will does. Number three, NIV study Bible suggests it's just the unbelief in general is destined to result in destruction. So that when Peter says they were destined for this is because they were unbelievers. And that's what happens when you don't believe in God. Your destiny is fixed. You die. Well, I won't get into that. You can take your choice there. We go to 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you, he's contrasting to those who have stumbled over the rock and are ground to powder. Well, he, he doesn't say ground to powder. He just says stumbled over and tripped over and stumbled. On the one hand, those are the builders, the rejecting builders, the Jews, the Jewish leaders. But you, on the other hand, those who believe in Jesus are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, this is some high calling here. You are a chosen race. We just said that Jesus was chosen to be the cornerstone. He was the elect one. Likewise, we are elect. We're chosen. I'm going to go through six scriptures here very quickly to show how we are chosen. I'm doing this because if you go to a Baptist church or, an, or a Methodist church or a Pentecostal church or Nazarene church, in fact, if you go to just about any church you can find, a community church, you're not going to hear about you being an elect. People are scared to death of that word. I'm not. So here we go. And either is the scripture for that matter. Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Isaiah 43, 20. The animals of the field will honor me, jackals and ostriches, because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The Jews were God's elect. Isaiah 44, 1 through 2. And now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord your maker who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear, Jacob, as my servant. I have chosen Jeshurun. Now, of course, an Armenian will say these verses are just talking about Israel being chosen as a nation. But whether an individual gets into that chosen nation or not is by your free will because God doesn't have anything to do with that. I don't think so. Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 14, 2, For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So, these Old Testament passages we're talking about that I just quoted, we're talking about the Israel being a chosen race, chosen nation, but now... That's the old Israel. But now Peter is referring to the election, referring to the new Israel. You Christians, he's talking about, are a chosen race. So he's going to use Old Testament types 
and fulfill them in New Testament antitypes. The Old Testament shadows will be filled in the re- be, will be fulfilled in the substance in the reality of the New Testament. You're a chosen race. Now, of course, the Jews were a race. That term race is hard to define, but it basically means those who share the same genetic and possibly cultural characteristics. Race sounds like genetic, but I don't know. If you ever see try to find somebody to define race, it gets real difficult. But we all know when we say the Jewish race, we mean the Jews. The reason I say that's difficult, and today there's a lot of Jews that are from Africa. There's, you see some, I've seen, I remember growing up in my hometown, there was a Jewish woman. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. I remember thinking that was so strange. Then I go to China, I find out in the west of China, there were Chinese people with blonde hair and blue eyes. I thought that was weird too. But anyway, the Israel was the chosen race in the Old Testament. Now it's the New Testament, the new Israel is chosen. We are a royal priesthood. Now that can either mean that we are priest of a king, Jesus. We're a royal priesthood, a priesthood serving the king, Jesus. Or it could mean, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown takes it, we are kings as well as priests. We are a royal kingly priesthood, so we're kings and priests at the same time. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if I can prove from another scripture that we are kings as well as priests, but I know we're priests. For example, in Revelation 1.6, God has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, a kingdom of priests. All right, so we're priests. I've already mentioned what priests do. In a previous verse, we minister God to, to Christian, our fellow Christians, and we Lift up our fellow Christians to God because priests are sort of like go-betweens. Peter's already said in verse 5 that we just read that you are living stones, a spiritual house being built to be a holy priesthood. That's when I talked about it before. Now, Isaiah prophesied about this. Isaiah 61, 6. This is the new heavens and new earth chapter, which I believe to be the new covenant, not the final state. But you will be called the Lord's priests. So we Christians are priests now, and we fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, you will boast in their riches. In other words, the priesthood, the royal priesthood is going to spread all over the world, which it has done. I mean, Christians are everywhere now. Thank God for it. Exodus 19.6, this is talking about the Jews. You will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. And of course, that's the type. The antitype is the church, which is also a kingdom of priests. Peter goes on in this verse, in verse 9, to say that we are a holy nation. Well... Who was the holy nation of the Old Testament? That was the Jews, the nation of Israel. We see that in Deuteronomy 28.9. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, which is the same thing as a holy nation. This is Moses or God, I can't remember which, talking to the people of Israel. Exodus 19.6, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So you see, Peter is pulling right from the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. These are the words that you to say to the Israelites. What words? That you will be my kingdom of priests. So that's the Old Testament kingdom of priests, the holy nation. Exodus 19.6 says, not only will you be a kingdom of priests, you will also be my holy nation, a set-apart nation, set apart from all the other nations of the world and consecrated to God. Likewise, the church is to be the same. Peter goes on in verse 9, 1 Peter 2, the church is to be a people for his possession. This is also Old Testament language. Deuteronomy 4.20, but the Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance. People for his possession, same thing. Deuteronomy 7.6, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession. Deuteronomy 14.2, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be his own possession. There's the choosing again. There's the holy again. 
And there's God's own possession again, Isaiah 43, 21. The people I formed for myself will declare my praise, Mal- Malachi 3:17. There will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, a special possession on the day I am preparing. Titus 2:14. that will go to the New Testament, Titus 2:14. He gave himself, that's Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. So Titus uses that language, so does Peter. It comes straight out of the law, the Torah. The Pentateuch, Moses. Why did God call us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession? So that, in order that, you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the purpose of all these benefits that God has conferred upon our heads through no merit of our own, is so that we may proclaim God's praises. We need to remember that. That's why God put us together in the church, to proclaim his praises, not just to witness to people, not just to help each other out, with works of charity and so forth, but to sing his praises and to proclaim praises of God to other people, not just to God, but to other people. 1 Peter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, Peter continues, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'm sure that sounds familiar. That comes straight out of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, 6 through 10. She, referring to Hosea's prostitute wife, Gomer, she, Gomer, conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her no compassion, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or by house and cavalry. After Gomer had weaned no compassion, that's lo ruhuma in the, in the more literal translations. Homer Christian Study Bible puts it in English so we can understand it better. After Gomer had weaned no compassion, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, Name him not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, You are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. And so there you have the fulfillment of Hosea. The builders rejected Jesus, so they are not his people anymore. And so... When Peter writes to the Jewish Christians, once you were not a people, that's when you were Jewish and not a believer. You were not a people. You were not in the people of God that counts now. But now you are God's people, people for God's own possession, he says in verse 9. And here in verse 10, you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hosea continues that idea of being not God's people in Hosea 2.23. I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion or no compassion. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Paul picks up on this quotation from Hosea 2 in Romans 9, verses 25 through 26. As he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people. See, we're going from not to yes, from no to yes. You're not my people to yes, you are my people. Now, the NIV Study Bible points out that in Hosea, it is Israel that is called not a people. But in Romans, it's the Gentiles who are not a people. But now they are. Paul is applying it to the Gentiles as well as to the to the. Jews, I don't know whether Peter does. You know, people debate who Peter was written to. Was it written to Jewish Christians or was it written to Gentile Christians too? I'm assuming Jewish Christians. It just seems like it to me, but I'm not a Bible scholar. I can't argue that point one way or the other. The NIV Study Bible says it's the Jews and the Gentiles who are not a people who are being made into a people. This is despite the fact that in the first verse of the book, Peter is writing to the dispersion, to those who are temporary residents in all, in all those Anatolian provinces. We go now to verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. 
Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, the Gentiles will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. First of all, who are strangers and temporary residents? Are they different? Are they synonymous? I'm not going to worry about that too much. I remember when I was overseas, are, are you a tourist? Do you have a tourist visa? Do you have a business visa? Do you have a green card and all that stuff? The point is you're not a citizen. You're a foreign, you're an alien, a foreigner. I was a foreigner for 23 years or so, so I know what that's like. You're not living at home. So he, again, he's talking to these dispersed Christians up in present-day Turkey. Here's some scriptures about being foreigners and temporary residents. Hebrews 11:13. These all died in faith without having received the promises, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Foreigners, temporary residents. Could be foreigners and temporary residents on the land, actually, the land of Israel, they, because it was held by the Canaanites. But the point is, is they weren't, they didn't have that Roman citizenship like the Romans did. You know, it was a big deal. I mentioned that Peter wrote to the dispersion here in 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he wrote to the dispersion. I think that's Jewish people. I don't know where Gentiles come in here, but I'm not going to argue that point too hard. Now, let's look at this word. I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. And I guess what Peter is saying, you don't have a lot of status, folks. You are persecuted against the world, so it might be a good idea to behave properly so the world doesn't come after you, will not have reason to come after you. He says, abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Well, there's your war. You know, people always say, the old man is fighting the new man, and I feel this war going on inside of me. That is absolute nonsense, in my humble opinion, because Paul says in Romans 6 that the old man is dead. Straight out, point out, point blank says that the old man is dead. Now, what old man have you ever seen? saw? A dead man. Have you ever seen an old dead man fighting a war anywhere? It's a corpse lying on the field of battle. It's dead. It's over. Gone. But the Bible does talk about the flesh waging war against you. In fact, when you read that all through the book of Romans, you need to think, that's not the old man that Paul's talking about, assuming that Paul is a believer in Romans 7. I know everybody doesn't believe that, but assuming he is, it's not his old man that's fighting against him. He never says it is. He's talking about his flesh. And Peter right here says the same thing as fleshly desires. Why does that matter? Is that just theological nitpicking? No, I don't think so, because the old man is your old self, your essence, who you really are. And the old sinful you, the essential you, was a sinner destined for hell, and that's gone. Now the essential you is a new man, born again by the imperishable word of God, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's essentially who you are. Now, you do have fleshly desires that war against the essential who you are, and but because of who you are, you can overcome those fleshly desires and not do them. And the reason you can overcome them, Paul, Peter would not be exhorting people to abstain from those fleshly desires unless it was possible for them to abstain. So the flesh is something that you can beat. That's called the process of sanctification. But you don't kill your old man. The old man was already killed when you got born again. Peter says in verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably. Well, first of all, fleshly desires. Let's talk about some of those fleshly desires. Now, Fleshly desires are common to all humankind. I don't care what country, what age, what culture, what ethnic group you're in. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 gives a great list. Now, the works of the flesh, there's the flesh again, you know, these fleshly desires that war against you internally. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, 
jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing. Sounds like Americans. Oh, it sounds like anybody. That's what the human race is. Welcome to the human race, folks. That's the way it is. Oh, but we're going to build a just society. We're just going to have a good government, and we'll have good social institutions and non-governmental organizations, and we'll have peace and harmony. Yeah, right. People have been preaching that moonshine for years. John Dewey in America, Karl Marx in China, even Confucius in China. Oh, mankind is basically good. Yeah, right. These people have neither read history books, they've never read a newspaper or the Internet. They don't know nothing. When they say stuff that is ignorant is that to say that mankind is basically good. No, he is not basically good. He has poison under his tongue. There is no, not one that is righteous. Not one. Now, I mentioned that Paul talked about the flesh in the book of Romans. Here's where he mentions war. Romans 7.23, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, and that's his flesh, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body, his flesh. So in the parts of his body, his flesh, there's war. Peter says the same thing. So next time you talk about that internal battle that you have with sin in your life, don't say it's a battle between the old man and the new man, which you're going to say, well, what if the old man wins? What if you died? Does the old man go to hell and the new man go to heaven so that you split at your death? I mean, come on. Now, let's get to why Peter is exhorting these Jewish Christians to conduct themselves honorably among the Gentiles. So that in a case, this is verse 12, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do evil, they instead will observe your good works, glorify God. Well, what were some of the things that early Christians were accused of by Gentiles? Gross immorality? The Christians talked about going to love feast, and what did the Gentiles say? Oh, they're going to an orgy, a love feast, get it? Or, especially sedition, this was aimed at Jewish converts a lot. They were charged with refusing to yield to Gentile magistrates. Remember, Paul had had his trouble. He refused to yield. Well, he would go to the magistrates and say, I'm a Roman citizen, leave me alone. But Christians, neither Christians nor Jews would pinch incense to worship the Roman emperor often because that was idolatry to them. They wouldn't do it, and so then they were, they were accused of sedition. Love feast, having orgies at night. Sedition, and Peter saying, don't do anything that will give these people who are defaming your character, don't give them a handle to beat you over the head with. Instead, by observing your good works, they will glorify God. That reminds me of a church in Laoning Province in China that I visited one time years ago. And I was shocked to find out that they were just open. They had a building right there on the main street. I forgot the name of the city that it was in. It was in I remember it was Laoning Province. And and he said, well, that's because we invite, and we invite, he said that we invite the police here every year to watch Christmas play. I said, you invite the police? How do you do that? He said, well, they had two natural disasters in that town. There was a fire one time. I think it was a flood another time. And in both cases, the church went out and rebuilt people's houses. The government was so appreciative of all the good work they did that they laid off the church and started actually attending the services. That's personal. I heard that personally while I was over there. So sometimes, not always, I don't think this is a, a carte blanche promise that Gentiles are going to observe good works of Christians and say, okay, let's let them go. Of course, there's people that is evil in the world. They don't care about good works, but a lot of times they will. Think of another story in China in Xinjiang province. There was this young man who had gotten caught for the horrible crime of just being a Christian. He was put into a small cell with about 11 or 12 other criminals. They were rapists and murderers, and it was blazing hot, and there was no air conditioning, and there was nobody to fix, clean the toilet. They all had to share and they had to go to the bathroom in front of each other in the midst of all the flies and the stench and the heat. And then 
Then the guard would take the Christian out and beat him with a telephone. This was before cell phones when they had the landlines with a, with a line on it. And he would swing the telephone around and smash him and put him out in the hot sun in a gung fu position and let the, let the heat swell up his throat so he's about to die of thirst. You know, things like that. Get electric cradle prod and, pro, and poke him in his genitals and shock him badly and so forth. And so the rapists and the murderers finally started talking to the guards. Why are you doing this to this guy? We're the bad guys. He didn't do anything wrong. So, yeah. It, people, even hardened criminals, can observe that Christians, when they behave differently, they're different than the world, and they don't deserve it. Same thing with those gladiatorial combats. The Jews, excuse me, the Romans saw the Christians and how they died, and they said, wait a minute, there's something different about these people. And they started thinking, they started having sympathy for them. And these were people that were hardened by these gladiatorial combats and seen many of them and had seen people murdered and killed constantly right in front of them. And they said, wait a minute, there's something different about the way these Christians are dying. So yeah, fly right and the odds are that you will maybe obviate some persecution which might be headed your way. This is what Peter's saying. He says they, the Gentiles will glorify God when they see your good works on the day of visitation. Now it's interesting, what is this day of visitation? The NIV study Bible says that it's the day of judgment. Well, I guess the way that works is if the Gentile sees the Christian gets converted by their behavior and then he gets saved, so then he'll go to heaven and when he sees Jesus, he'll say, I'm praising you now because when one of your children was being persecuted, I saw it and I got converted. Okay, that's the NIV Study Bible's answer or suggestion. Here's another suggestion from the NIV Study Bible. The day of visitation is the day when God visits a believer with salvation. So the Gentile glorifies God when God comes to save when Jesus comes to save him. That's the day of visitation. Could be. Here's what Adam Clark says. Jesus is coming in judgment to destroy Israel in 870. Could be. Here's John Gill's option. The day when heathen magistrates come to their districts to examine their way of life. And I tend to lean toward that solution. The day of visitation when the magistrates come around to visit you to carry out judicial inquiries and then instead of putting you in jail and torturing you or punishing you they said well you know you people are not doing so bad you people are good citizens we're going to let you go i think that's what he means that's debatable of course now the, the phrase day of visitation implies judgment i'm going to give you isaiah 10 verse 3 in three different translations where the day of visitation is used or the Hebrew that's behind the day of visitation is used, and you'll see that punishment is involved. Here's Isaiah 10.3 in the Young's literal translation. And what do you, and what do ye at a day of inspection? Day of visitation is a day of inspection. That means when the magistrates come around and look and see what's going on. Isaiah 10.3 in the American Standard Version. And what will ye do in the day of visitation? That's the phrase that's used in most modern translations. And then in Homer Christian Study Bible, the version I'm using, it says, what will you do on the day of punishment when devastation comes from far away? So the day of visitation is a day of punishment. And so this is either referring to the punishment at the end of time or it's referring to the punishment when the Gentiles come and examine the Jewish Christians to see what they're doing. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12. In our next audio, we will take up 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 25 to the end of the chapter, and we will discuss submission to authority. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 